in a series that we're calling the Encouraging Words series, uh, where we're, we're taking passages from you all, uh, and we're talking about those words from the Word that encourage us, that inspire us, that speak to us again and again and again throughout our lives. Uh, it's been my pleasure to, to, to do this series with you. Uh, I continue to receive the emails and the phone calls, uh, so keep them coming. Uh, we'll do this as, as far as we can. Let's begin today with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to give you thanks and praise. We gather in this sanctuary uh, to honor you and to bring you glory and to worship you. God, we come this morning also uh, knowing that um, many of us come with, with burdens And we come with trials and tribulations, and we come with all sorts of things that are are weighing us down in this moment. And and God, may your word be encouragement to us. May we find our hope in you this morning, and may you speak loud and clear to us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Before we get into the text itself, uh, I want you to actually turn with me to the book of Lamentations, the sword drill, uh, can you find Lamentations in your Bible? Uh, I've got mine nice and uh, tabbed here already, so beat you to it. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, uh, I actually remember this occasion where I was trying to find the book of Lamentations to read this exact passage, and I, was like, and I, I, just, I kept thumbing through, I kept thumbing through, and I was like, where is this book? I can't find this book, right? Uh, it sits right after the book of Jeremiah. Okay, so uh, strangely, in maybe not strangely, but uh, in in uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, it actually sits in a different spot in the Hebrew Bible. It sits toward the end of it all. Uh, but in our uh, Protestant Bibles or, or Christian Bibles, uh, we uh, we weave together this book right next to to the book of Jeremiah and weave it within to the prophets themselves uh, because of its link uh, to the prophet Jeremiah. And so if you find yourself with either the huge book of Isaiah or the huge book of Jeremiah or the the huge book of Ezekiel, these follow each other, right in between there is squeezed this very small five-chapter book of Lamentations. Um, There's a couple things about the book of Lamentations I want you to know. And one is, I say this enough where it feels like a little bit of too much repetition, but it can't be said enough uh, just how much the Babylonian captivity affected uh, our scriptures. These people who wrote the scriptures, uh, who collected the scriptures, uh, and then passed down these scriptures and, and uh, uh, essentially birthed what is uh, Judaism, okay? Uh, And so the context, the social context of what we're reading is devastation. You know, think like, um, think uh, maybe some of the photos you've been seeing coming out of Ukraine. You know, the bombed out schools, uh, the the town squares that used to be bustling with people and used to be hot spots where where, uh, uh, a lot of activity would happen and is now just desolate and buildings are crumbled. That's, that is what's exactly happening here in the book of Lamentations. The, the Babylonians have, have come into Jerusalem and they've destroyed it all. They've leveled it all. 
and they've carted away the people of Israel. Just, if you will, uh, turn to the opening chapter of it, Lamentations 1, and, and you get this picture. He says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah, the place where Jerusalem sits, has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all t- uh, overtaken her in the midst of her distress. I could read on and on. In fact, I would encourage you to do this. If you, it's a short book. It's five chapters, right? If you read uh, from the beginning of Lamentations uh, 1-1 uh, to the end, at the end of chapter 5, you might actually not come away encouraged or uh, filled with hope. You'd probably come away lamenting. It's called Lamentations for a reason, right? It's a lament. It's a book of sadness. The whole thing is filled with that sadness, except the one part we all know, <laughs> which is the, the part that we're reading for this morning. And uh, it's worth saying that that part sits right in the dead center of the whole thing. So if it's five chapters, right, we're in the middle of chapter three, right? The middle of the middle chapter. And we're reading this part. So you you have a a dark canvas, right? A desolate uh, wasteland that is Jerusalem. And then uh, the prophet Jeremiah is saying... It's awful, it's terrible, you'll never believe how horrible things are right now, right? He says this very loud, loudly and clearly. And he puts, uh, puts Jerusalem on the map and he puts himself into the story too. And he says God has done this not just to Jerusalem, but to me. He really personalizes things in this book. And then he gets somehow to the middle of it all. And he says, you know what? I know things look terrible, But I also know that I serve a God who is faithful. This, to me, is far more encouraging than somebody who is a happy-go-lucky person, has a charmed life, who says to you, uh, hey, God's faithful, you know. When I think of the power that sits in the book, what makes it powerful is not just the words themselves, as powerful as they are, But it's the context within which they're said. This is Jeremiah at his worst. Jerusalem at its worst. He's looking around. Everything he knew that was life is destroyed. It's in rubbles. It's crumbled before him. He knows people who are now dead. And he's wondering what in the world happened. And somehow, in the midst of this, He reminds himself that God is faithful. Uh, So that's the social context of this book. 
There's also another piece that I think is fascinating, and since you've got your book, uh, your Bible opened uh, to the book of Lamentation, uh, go ahead and just turn with me, a little uh, show and tell here, uh, to the end of chapter one, and somebody shout out to me, how many, how many verses are in chapter one? 22 verses. How many uh, verses are in uh, chapter two? 22. Whoa. How many in chapter three? 66. What, something happened there. How many in chapter 4? 22. And then chapter 5 is different. What, uh, what is happening here? Anybody know? Do you know what's going on with, uh, with this? Lizzie, do you know? Did I? Anybody? It follows the Hebrew alphabet. Thank you. Gary uh, gets this, the gold star for the morning. Uh, so every chapter, every single one, including chapter three, uh, has, uh, well, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in it. Uh, and every verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. What makes chapter three different and remarkable uh, is... Every single, well, it, it gets cut up into 66 verses, right? And so three times is used the letter Aleph. Three times is used the letter, the letter Bet, right? And it goes on through the whole Hebrew alphabet so that uh, the, the person who put in uh, the numbers of the verses, uh, they used 66 instead of 22. Are we all on the same page? Here's why this is interesting to me. Um, one, there's clearly intentionality going on, right? Somebody is, uh, is intentionally writing. And this is not the only place in the Bible uh, where this uh, technique gets used. You might know like Psalm 119, for example, does this exact same thing. Uh, a lot of Psalms actually do. There's, there's more than you might think. Uh, Proverbs uh, 30 or 31, uh, one of these uh, does the same thing. Anyway, it's a, it's a Hebrew technique on, on writing, uh, in this case, poetry, right? It's a poetic, so instead of rhyming, they don't rhyme, but they do, in this case, uh, use the letters of the Hebrew alphabet to create a system or a structure to, to the poetry here, uh, which is to say it's poetry and it's art. And it's somebody who's in, again, a dark, dark place. And uh, something within him stirs him to write a poem rather than just like a story or, or a narrative. He writes a poem. And his art becomes a way uh, of getting at even a deeper level, I think, of what's happening in his life that then connects to the generations that follow him and their, their generations and all the way forward, you know, 3,000 years later to our generation to this very day. We can read this same poem. We can read Lamentations 3 and feel like, yes, I need that word, right? I need that word. That speaks to me here and now. Um, the other piece, and I debate whether or not to say this, uh, I, I picked up this book, for, I haven't read it in a while, and uh, it's a book by Henry Nowen. If you don't know who Henry Nowen is, 
uh, highly recommend him. Uh, he is, was uh, a Catholic priest, uh, but writes a lot of spiritual uh, works, uh, or, or did anyway. He passed in like, the 90s. Um, and this one is called The Inner Voice of Love. It is, a, um, it is his journal, actually, for a six-month period of his life that he wasn't going to publish, that he kept secret, in fact, for like eight years. And uh, these six months were the darkest months of his life. Uh, he felt God abandoning him. He uh, was a priest and trying to figure out, like, how, how can I be a priest uh, and, and speak hope into people's lives when I'm not feeling it myself? And so he, he, uh, he journaled through this window of time. Uh, and in it, he's very honest about, like, his own struggles and his, his, his own uh, uh, inner workings on his, his own spiritual life. And, and then, of course, he debated, he didn't want to publish it. Uh, and, and he had a friend who was walking with him through this, this time who said, you really need to publish that, right? You know, people need to know that, uh, that even uh, the, the best spiritual leaders have these periods of time where they struggle and to be able to watch you struggle uh, through this and come out on the other side, uh, that's really powerful. And sure enough, it, it became uh, what it is, and it's a, it's a powerful memoir of this man's life. And, and every chapter, he's, he's speaking to himself, and he's saying, you know, uh, basically, Henry, uh, you, need to, uh, you need to think this way. You know, I know you're not thinking this way, but you need to think this I'll read a, a, a piece of it in a moment here. Um, I think of Lamentations not dissimilarly. Uh, I, uh, I, I started to think of Lamentations almost like a journal of somebody who's, who's just really wrestling with, um, with the fact that this terrible tragedy has come upon his life and his people's life, and he doesn't quite know uh, what to do with that. And so, for example, in the, the passage that, that just leads up to our passage for today, it says, um, in, starting in verse 14, he's, he's like, I, I've become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness, sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind in the gravel. He like, pushed my face in the gravel. And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And then he says this. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. That is in your Bible, folks. Right? My endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. So here's a man who... Uh, my <laughs> Uh, I, so the joke I had was, uh, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm thinking uh, Jeremiah is writing in a journal that he hopes is burned someday before it ever gets out into public, right? Uh, and now we have it sitting in our scriptures because the power of uh, this fact that he's recognizing this is sitting within him, this endurance that's perished, uh, within him is a hope that has died. And then... Right after that, he musters up the ability to write what has to be some of the most um, 
inspiring prose uh, in all of Scripture. And he says the following. He says, remember my affliction. Remember my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall, all of it, right? All that bit, by the way, wormwood, gall, it's, it's like uh, a bitter plant that uh, if you were to put it in a, a drink, it would make it almost uh, unable to be uh, drunk, uh, right? It would just, you, you don't want to drink this. Remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood, the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and my soul is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore my hopeless estate, in that state, I have this hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never Come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, what he's doing here is um, he's potentially, I think he is anyway, uh, he's, he's drawing us back to the very nature of God himself. Who is this God, right, that allows this thing to happen, this tragedy to take place? And I think he's pulling back on uh, what is not an incidental chapter in your Bible, Exodus 34, where Moses is on the mountain with God and God's revealing his true nature. And in verse 6 of Exodus 34, The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who the Lord is, right? He's he's revealing his very nature, And he's saying, my nature as God of the universe is one that is merciful, it is gracious, it is slow to anger, it's abounding in steadfast love, it is faithful, right? And I think that Jeremiah here in chapter 3 is pulling on this and he's saying, I know what it looks like all around me. And I know the rubble around me says that God has abandoned us and it's all gone, right? But I also know this, that God has revealed himself and God has said things like he is a merciful God. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies are new every morning and his faithfulness is great. That is the God that we serve. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He keeps going, and so should we. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. 
It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Uh, We've seen this before. The answer often to troubled times is to wait, (laughs) which is probably not the answer most of us are really looking for. The answer we're looking for is now, right? It's not wait, it's now. But we get it over and over again. Wait on the Lord. The Lord is good. Wait on the Lord. Wait quietly even for the salvation of the Lord. Seek the Lord. And continues in verse 27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in again silence. When it is laid on him, let him put his mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. And here again, it's this recognition uh, of, of laying prostrate, knowing that I have been beaten down, and yet there may be hope. What in the world does he have to hope in, though? Right? What is his hope? What is he waiting on? There's probably a few answers we could say to these questions. But most certainly, it's the recognition that we are waiting on the God of the universe who has a plan, who is all-powerful, who is capable of all things, who sees time differently, and we sit as a, a, a speck in time where God is seeing the whole of it. And if we're in the midst of misery and pain or discomfort or tragedy or whatever desperate situation we are in, whatever situation that reminds us of what Jeremiah himself was in, The answer is, all is not lost. We must wait on the Lord. The story is not yet over. Jeremiah can recognize the truth that he feels hopeless in this situation, but there is this other truth at work in him. And that it's not hopeless. That his hope is in the Lord. It is a hope-filled truth. Which brings me back to Henry Nouwen. <clears throat> and so I read this for today, and I thought I'd share it with you, because I rather enjoyed it, and I thought it appropriate. In this man's dark hour, this is what he had to say to himself. He says this, You have to begin to trust that your experience of emptiness is not the final experience. That beyond it, is a place where you are being held in love. As long as you do not trust that place beyond your emptiness, you cannot safely re-enter the place of pain. He's saying, unless you trust that there is a beyond, don't try to go back to the place of pain. (laughs) That's going to just bring more pain. He says this, so you have to go into the place of your pain with knowledge in your heart, that you have already found that new place. 
that that new place is there waiting for you, even if you haven't entered it fully yet, is what he's saying, but you know that it's there. There's something beyond the tragedy of the now. And he says, you've already tasted some of its fruits. The more roots you have in the new place, the more capable you are of mourning the loss of the old place and letting go of the pain that lies there. You cannot mourn something that has not died. Still the old pains, attachments, and desires that once meant so much to you need to be buried. You have to weep over your lost pains so that they can gradually leave you and you can become free to live fully in the new place without melancholy or homesickness. The book is called Lamentations. <laughs> it, is, it is lamenting what has been lost. Jeremiah has lost a lot. But what Jeremiah is giving to us and what he was doing within himself in this moment is recognizing that what has been lost is not the end of the story. It's not the only place there is. God is and will lead us to something more, to something that is beyond. And we must yearn for it. And we must trust in that. And we must, as Jeremiah says, wait for it. Wait quietly. To finish up our passage, there's actually a lot here. I'll keep it brief. He says, Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And here, Jesus must be quoting from Lamentation in Matthew 5. When he's saying, turn the other cheek. When he's saying, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, Lamentations got it right. That's what Jesus is saying. <laughs> let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And then this verse is the one that really caught my attention. I had never seen it before. I had never paid much attention to it. And yet here it is. It's our last verse. And it sits at the center of the center of the center of Lamentations. Right? Verse 33 of 66 in the center chapter. This. He says, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now, your Bible might say uh, a translation, something like, uh, he does not afflict willingly. Sometimes, I think that's how the King James translated it originally, and then that gets passed down through other translations. It's not a bad translation. It's just from the heart is, the, uh, is, is quite a literal translation in this case. And here's how I read this. And you can disagree with me, but I do have a lot of school. <laughs> Here's how I read this. Uh, God does not afflict from the heart means this. 
that we can trust God's actions in this world. And that when we feel afflicted by God, and maybe we are even being punished, as Lamentations is clearly saying the people of Jerusalem were being punished in that situation. What Jeremiah is also saying is that's not the heart of who God is. That that peace, the punishment peace, that lasts for a time, and it's short-lived, But the truth of the matter is that what is at the heart of God is God's steadfast love, his willingness to be far more patient with us than we could ever imagine. His uh, faithfulness is at his heart. When we talk about the character of God, it's these things. We can talk about God's anger or wrath or punishment, yes, but it's always in connection with some higher good, something like justice. We need a just God who meets out punishment just as a good judge should. But it's not like God is laughing while he's doing that. It's not like God is enjoying it while he's doing it. That is not who God is. God does it for their good and for our good. And at the heart of who God is, is all those things that I read from Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But then it finishes this way. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children. And it recognizes that sometimes iniquity does get to a point where it has to be dealt with. But it's not the nature of God. It's a necessary piece of being a just God. All right, so what do we do with all this? My guess is, as we walked in this morning, we all came in from different uh, places in life. Some of us are coming in here uh, filled with uh, hope uh, and goodness, and I think that's great. And the message that I would want to leave you with, if that's who you are, is that we have a God who is indeed an ever-present God filled with mercy and love and hope, and we can trust in this God, and you should take that message to the masses. And somebody is probably in your life who is not quite where you are. Maybe that person who's in your life is actually the person who's walking in having just found out that They're losing their spouse, or their child has died, or uh, an uncle has passed, or a marriage is splitting up, 
or something terribly uh, tragic has happened that will forever shake the ground of that person's life. And that's you. You have a lot in common with Jeremiah. He is living in a hellscape where he doesn't know up from down, where everything that was his has been taken away from him. All of the people he knew have been carted off to Babylon, and the life that he once enjoyed and lived, it has been taken. And you might feel like that. Don't take it from me, Eric Gilchrist. I would encourage you to take it from Jeremiah, that there is still good reason to hope, that the story's not over yet. That this God that we serve and that we worship is a God who loves you and is for you. And if you wait quietly and keep seeking, God will answer. He is there. He's waiting to hear you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for being there for us when we fail you, for being true to us when we are untrue to you, for searching after us day in, day out, waiting for us to just simply draw near to you. God, sometimes there are those moments where we do need you to draw near to us, to make your presence known, to make it very clear, God, that you are there to comfort those who are hurting. And so this morning, as we sing together, great is your faithfulness, God. I pray that we sing it in such a way that we be filled with the hope of possibility because we serve a big God who is faithful to the promises he made and will be faithful to us. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.